Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Lawrence Shatkin, Ph.D., who is author of Your Guide to High-Paying Careers. Today we will discuss high-paying careers. Lawrence has been a writer and researcher in the field of career information for 35 years. He was one of the developers of the Seeky Plus Career Information System at the Educational Testing Service, and he has developed and adapted similar systems for use in the United States, Australia, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. He's the author or co-author of more than two dozen books about careers. He lives in Titusville, New Jersey. Lawrence, welcome. Glad to be talking to you. What's SIGI Plus? This was a system, well, it stands for System of, uh, of Interactive uh, Guidance and Information. And it was a career information system that was developed at Educational Testing Service to help people, originally people in college, then eventually uh, a, a broad adult audience, uh, to help them make decisions about careers. So it led them through a process of career decision-making and also provided information about careers so that people could make those decisions. I was hired uh, to work on this when it was simply called SIGI and it was aimed uh, entirely at college students. And then I was involved, with, uh, and, and my role there was in developing the career information. And then I was involved in, in making the system reach a wider audience. So all of this career information is the space that you've been moving in for most of your career. Yes, it's been 35 years that I've been working in the field of career information, and uh, the economy has changed quite a bit during that amount of time, um, and the sources of information of careers uh, have, have changed and have improved. We're very lucky in this country that we have uh, some very excellent uh, resources for career information, that, uh, information that's provided by the Department of Labor mostly, and uh, it's, it's really an advantage we have over some other countries, and that helps our economy by helping people find careers where they will find some satisfaction, where they will be productive, and uh, it's, it's an important service. Excellent. Mm-hmm. In the United States, how many people are employed, are gainfully employed? In other words, they work for hire or receive a salary for their work? There are about 120 million people working now full-time. Uh, it's been increasing recently uh, since the uh, Great Recession, we've made a, uh, particularly in the last year, we've made a very nice comeback from that. Uh, there's still the actual rate of people who are employed as opposed to people who are just sitting on the sidelines and not working, looking for work, uh, has been uh, going down. And that's something that's been a, a, a cause of some concern. Some of this is because of people uh, who are uh, baby boomers who are getting out of the workforce and going into retirement. But some of it may be people who are just um, just don't have the skills to be able to work uh, productively in this in, uh, in this uh, economy and therefore can't find really the suitable work. Uh, but this is something that uh, has, has been a decline that's been going on since the middle 2000s. So it's not really new. It really wasn't brought on by the recession. Uh, and it, it, the, the very latest labor reports, uh, economy reports, say that it, it it's, the decline has, has leveled off, uh, at least temporarily, and that's uh, that's a good sign. At first glance, when we look at that number, 120 million people working full-time, and we look at the overall numbers 
of our population, which is over 300 million, somewhere around 310 by now, I, I would imagine, it would seem a bit out of sync. But we have to take into account, of course, that there are many who are underage, so they're not working full-time, children and teenagers, and then, of course, those who are retired, right? Right, yeah, and, and there are also people... This, by the way, this doesn't count people who are in the military, that, uh, that's a very large employer, uh, but it's not counted in the statistics for employment usually. Uh, and yes, and it doesn't count people who are uh, simply out of the workforce because uh, they've given up on the possibility of finding work. And uh, that's we don't like to see that happening, but uh, it's a reality that some people don't have the skills that uh, jobs require now. It used to be that uh, people, that manufacturers, for example, would take some person right off the farm put that person in front of a machine and that person would be a very productive worker with very minimal training. But uh, now there's a robot doing that instead or it's being done uh, in some foreign country where the workers are even cheaper. And so uh, that, that's created a, an employment gap in this country where a, a lot of people don't have the skills that are needed. And so we enter the place where it's difficult to know how people get to those high-paying careers that we're going to talk about today because yes. how can you grow in a company if the entry-level opportunities are being farmed overseas? I'm yeah. hoping you can tell us about that. Yes, that, that is a concern. And the thing is that uh, generally you're going to need uh, to, to aim for these high-paying careers, the ones that I discuss in the book. You're going to need a high level of skill. And most people don't get that on the job. Most people get that through formal uh, education in some cases, they can get it through a mixture of education and on-the-job learning, uh, but usually that education is, go is going to be important. Most of these occupations do require a high level of education or, uh, in some cases, a considerable amount of work experience in a related job. So uh, it's something that the people with minimal skills who, who used to work in factories, for example, very few of them made their way up the ladder into the high-paying uh, jobs that are discussed in this book. So education is going to continue to be important. When we say high-paying job, you, you made a decision in terms of what that meant in the book. Would you tell us what that line is that divides high-paying jobs versus not high-paying jobs and how you made the decision? Well, you can be sort of arbitrary about that. I mean, it, it's it's really uh, sort of a, an arbitrary uh, cutoff point that, that anybody could set for, for what they're, uh, what consists a high paying. I would consider a job high paying, uh, and I say job, I mean, mean an occupation, a uh, high paying if, if it's something that exceeds what maybe two-thirds of the people or, or three-quarters of the people in, in, the, uh, in the workforce are earning. So, uh, and there are, there, are, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does provide information on the spread of earnings, on, on what the median is, so half people earn more, half people earn less, what the, uh, the 25th percentile, so only 25% of the people reach that level, or what the 75th percentile is, where, where 75% of the people are under that. So I, I find that it's useful to use the 75th percentile as, as a cutoff. So we look for occupations, I look for occupations where only the top 25% are earning that. 
Um, you hear a lot about the 1% these days, but I, uh, I'm not going to refine it to, to that high level. Uh, I'm looking at people who are, uh, are, aren't in quite that high a level, uh, because let's face it, very few people can make it into that 1%. Uh, it's more realistic to look at, at a, a lower level. And we're talking specifically about jobs versus people who are business owners in hiring other people of their, on their own positions. These well, are... Well, I'm looking at, at wage and salary occupation. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at the wage and salary figure. So, for example, I do have chief executives here, and some people who would, would fall under that who really are maybe owning a business, but still, it, but basically it, it, I'm looking at wage and salary figures uh, that I get from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And so, yeah, so I wouldn't include the people who are, are uh, making their money because of the, the profits of the business that they own. And about how many occupations or careers would you say fall under that 25 percentile that you've selected? I, I really can't tell you that off the top of my head. That's something that that, that, uh, uh, that I, I really I don't remember from from uh, having done this. I I'd have to look again uh, to tell tell you exactly what the number is. But um, another thing, by the way, that that I did keep in mind when doing this, when coming up with a set of of occupations that I put in this book, was the question of uh, I didn't want to include occupations that were really um, what you might call a loser, one, one that had a very bad outlook where people couldn't find work in the field because uh, it's an overcrowded field or that has a, a very poor outlook. It's not growing. It's not. There's not much turnover. Whatever the reason is that this occupation uh, has a bad outlook, I wouldn't want to include it in the book. And so for that reason, uh, I, I, uh, that also caused it to be limited to some extent. What's the approximate entry level Salary or income that these high-paying careers pay. There are 173 occupations in the book, and the the uh, the lowest paid of all those uh, was surveyors with uh, annual earnings of the median figure of fifty-six thousand two hundred thirty dollars. So that that's sort of you, you might say is the cutoff point. And what is the source of this information? You didn't just wake up one morning after 35 years of experience and snap your fingers. Obviously, you are relying on databases and your years of experience. Would you tell us a little bit about those data sources and how you gathered all this information, which I'm sure is a lot, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of careers that you've narrowed down to these 173 occupations? I use the Bureau of Labor Statistics as my uh, primary source, uh, and that covers about a 1,000 occupations, roughly, or maybe more like 900, something like that. And uh, they, and granted, what defines an occupation uh, is it's sometimes a little bit arbitrary. So, for example, they have an occupation called accountants and auditors. Now, there are some differences between accountants and, and auditors, but they throw them into one lumped together occupation, and that's what they call it. So you might argue that those are two occupations, but they regard it as one. So as I say, given like about 900 or, or 1,000 of those occupations, they report the, the, the earnings figures, and these are, again, the wage and salary figures for these occupations, and I looked at the medians that were reported, so half earn more, half earn less. And granted, that can be a little... Um, it's a limited amount of information in a way, because when you look at the uh, an occupation... 
you realize that, again, there are half, half of the people are earning more than that and half of them are earning less than that. So what does this figure mean? For that reason, when in the book I give information, specific information about each occupation, I not only show what the median earning is, but I also show what the middle 50% of earners are earning. So you get an idea of the range within that. And sometimes it's a broad net range, uh, and it's not, and there, there's a lot of variation from that median. Sometimes it's fairly narrow, and, and people don't earn all that much or, or more or less compared to the median. So uh, that's that's uh, one way of looking at it. Uh, and again, uh, to to repeat, uh, my main the source of information was the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They uh, come out with this information uh, every year, in, and they uh, for the previous May. From the list of occupations that they have, mm-hmm. eliminating those that you thought were dead end, where there weren't any opportunities for growth or that right. were difficult to find. Few openings. You eliminated those and you narrowed down from the all of the data down to 173 with a median income or median salary of 56200 as a starting point. Yes. Tell us about those 173. How did you divide them once you had picked those? Well, people like lists. And, uh, you know, everybody, when you're waiting in the dentist waiting room, you open up a magazine and you'll find a list of something, the top whatevers. Uh, and people do like these. And so the very first list I have in the book is the highest paying occupations in order of, of their uh, annual earnings. So from the highest to the lowest, up at the top, we've got physicians and surgeons, and they're earning more than 187200 Uh The Bureau of Labor Statistics doesn't have information on uh, if you're earning any more than that. That's the most they'll report, 187200 Uh And then going down to, as I say, surveyors down there at the bottom of that list, where uh, it's you know that, that number you just said, 56 roughly. So uh, that, that's one way of, of, of organizing them and looking at them. But I also looked at them in a number of other different ways and, and grouped them in another uh, number of different ways to help people make decisions about what occupations might interest them. So, for example, uh, I have a list where they're ordered by the, uh, the rate of growth. So you can see those that are fastest growing and those are uh, compared to those that are growing slowly. Uh, I, I order them according to uh, another list, according to uh, the number of job openings. And you have to understand that the growth and openings are not exactly the same thing. Uh, sometimes you have a very small occupation. It's growing rapidly, but it's still not going to account for a lot of job openings. And conversely, you can have an occupation that's not growing at all, but because it uh, has a very large workforce, there's always a certain amount of turnover, and that's creating a lot of job openings. So uh, that's another way of looking at them. I have uh, groups of lists here where uh, I organize them according to of the amount of education or training or work experience that's required. And that's something that people often want to consider because they will say, well, I don't really uh, have the, the, the stick-to-itiveness to be able to, to pursue a Ph.D. or uh, stay, uh, or get, get a, um, a professional degree. Uh, so what are some high occupations where I can go into it with just a bachelor's degree? And actually, there, there are quite a number. And, and then I have a few other kinds of lists, for example, the, with different interest fields, because some people might want to work more in a business setting or more in the arts or more in uh, uh, doing research. So these are uh, some of the ways that I group occupations. So I really slice and dice it in many different ways, because there are many different ways that people want to approach the whole question of, of making a career decision. This morning, 
I read an interesting note in the paper that talked about how the biggest employment opportunities were in certain pockets of the country. Specifically, they mentioned New York, Seattle, and San Francisco, all <laughs> coastal cities. But they also mentioned that there was a big trade-off because those also were the same places where finding a place to live was very challenging, that even people with salaries of exceeding $100,000 a year were unable to find homes. Was geography something that you took into account when looking at the list in terms of growth or openings or anything? Actually, I do have a list of high-paying occupations uh, based on the uh, metro areas. So, so for for each occupation, I show where uh, where they earn the most. Uh, but uh, I decided not to do something where I would say, well, these are the uh, the uh, the metro areas where it where everybody gets the most because. As you say, uh, a, a lot of times it's it's uh, confounded by the whole issue of uh, cost of living. So, for example, here in New Jersey, uh, the wages are high, but also the cost of living is high. Uh, whereas in a place like, let's say, um, Nebraska, the the, uh, the wages won't be as high, but the cost of living will, will also be less. And so, uh, and this is, by the way, something that and people have to have to make a decision about when they when they look at at uh, whether they want to take uh, a job in some distant city uh, they may the wages may be very attractive but they have to think about the cost of living and by the way another thing that that often involves is the amount of commuting that they may have to do because sometimes to, in order to be able to find affordable housing they have to live somewhere out of town uh, out in the suburbs or in the exurbs and uh, that can add a lot to the cost of, of, of your, and I'm not talking about just the cost of, of your gasoline and the wear and tear on the car, but simply the amount of time you spend uh, in the day. Uh, your hourly wage ends up falling quite a bit if you're spending t- uh, two hours a day in the car just to get to work, or, or on a train or on a bus just to get to work. It effectively uh, reduces your hourly pay. And I, got, I guess you can spend some of that time fairly productively. I've seen buses that have Wi-Fi that commute to New York from New Jersey. But still, I don't know how much people want to spend doing that kind of thing. So these are the kind of concerns you have to have when you make a decision about geography. Now, there's some other aspects of geography that play into this that have to do with, uh, for example, the oil patch, which has a lot of career opportunity now, and there are some pretty high-paying jobs, let's say petroleum engineers, working in places like North Dakota, where the, I guess normally the cost of living would be fairly low, although now this has become such a boomtown kind of atmosphere there that maybe uh, it's been going up. But uh, th- that's another geographic concern. There are clusters, people who want to make uh, big money, uh, people who are, are stars in, in a certain field. So let's say music, they want to go to Nashville, uh, or, uh, or maybe Memphis or, or uh, New Orleans. Uh, people who want to work in uh, information technology will go to places like Silicon Valley or uh, Seattle. So there are clusters like that. There are industrial clusters where there are high-paying jobs to be had uh, for in particular parts of the country, in particular industries. And that's always been the case. It's, it's kind of an interesting question how this kind of thing comes about. Often it's just a matter of happenstance. Uh, but sometimes there's something about the area, like a natural resource like oil on the ground or like the sunshine that Hollywood enjoys, that makes it a favorable place for an industry to get a good start and, and become a cluster. I'm guessing that our readers are very curious, since you mentioned the word, the highest paying 
careers. Would you share some of what those highest paying careers are? Well, the highest paying one of all that the Department of Labor identifies is physicians and surgeons. And that's a pretty large category because if you think about it, it includes some of the very high paying ones, such as the psychiatrists and the uh, surgeons. Uh, but also so the pediatricians don't get paid uh, as much as some of those other specializations. But if we look at this, at this occupation as a whole, people who, who with medical degrees, uh, and osteopathic degrees, that's included also. Um, the average is, as I said earlier, $187,200 plus. So it's something more than that, and uh, the Department of Labor doesn't really uh, give a figure for what, exactly what that is. Now, if we come, come down from that, the next uh, highest ranked one would be chief, chief executives, and their uh, average earnings is $168,140 per year. And then going below that, we got dentists at about 149 petroleum engineers, at about 130,000, uh, architectural and engineering managers at 124,000, computer information science uh, systems managers at 120,000, and marketing managers at 119,000. So you see that there's quite a few managers coming in there. Uh, management is uh, one way to increase your pay is going going into management. Uh, of course, there are a lot of, of, um, of skills that are required to do that and, and a lot of demands on the workers. Uh, I go a little further down the list. Pharmacists next at 116,000, podiatrists at 116,000, and judges, magistrate judges and magistrates at 115,000. Now, one thing that all these, these 10 occupations that I mentioned have in common is uh, a lot of education. One exception I guess I could mention would be the chief executives. You don't necessarily need a lot of education to do that. But let's face it, most people, particularly if you want to start in that field now, uh, you, you need to have a background in, uh, in managerial skills, which you probably learn from business school. And uh, again, I, uh, I mentioned that there was one engineering occupation up there that's going to require at least a bachelor's degree for the petroleum engineers. And for um, uh, pharmacists and podiatrists and physicians, you, you've got those advanced uh, professional degrees. I noticed you didn't mention lawyers. Most people would have expected lawyers to be on there. That comes in number 13 on my list at $113,530. So, so that's, that's way up there. It's not the highest, but it's way up there. What about the fastest growing and the ones with the most openings? Now, you said those were two distinct groups. Yes. Would you and, tell us? Yeah, as, as I said, there can be an occupation that's, uh, that's, that's rather small, but it's growing fast, uh, and so it's not really representing a lot of job openings. But it, So it maybe is doubling and tripling, but we're still talking about a small number of people. Um, but for the, the fastest growing ones that, uh, in this list, and this is a good example of that, is biomedical engineers. Uh, that one, when they're earning about uh, $87,000 a year, uh, and that's growing at, uh, expanding at a rate, an annual rate of 61.7%. I mean, that's huge. But uh, that really represents only about uh, 1,300 uh, new uh, openings a year. And when I say new, uh, it means both new jobs and job turnover. So it's both uh, growth and replacement. But that's, that's not a whole lot of openings if you think about it. But that's, but it's, it's growing very fast. So it's a good occupation. If you want to get in on the ground floor, it's a good place to, to be working. Diagnost, diagnostic medical sonographer is, is another one that is the second fastest growing. And that's growing at a rate of 43.5% per year. Now these are the estimates from the Department of Labor for the next 10 years. 
for, for annual growth. And sometimes it might be a little faster, sometimes it might be a little slower, but that's the average rate that's projected over those years. Then uh, going down that list, market research analysts and marketing specialists at 41.2% uh, per year, and physical therapists at 39% per year, dental hygienists at 37.7% per year. So, so those are the top five that I've got there for growth. And it's interesting, you'll notice that, that there's a lot of, of health care in there. The only, uh, I mentioned market research, but the other four that I mentioned are uh, related to health. Uh, and if you go further down the list, we also have a lot more uh, health-related occupations, such as audiologists and veterinarians and optometrists and occupational therapists. Healthcare is, is our biggest industry. It's a fastest-growing industry, and uh, so there is going to be a lot of opportunity there. And this is partly because the uh, very largely because the population is aging, so uh, people are needing more health care as they're getting older. Uh, also, health ins care insurance, uh, because the uh, Affordable Care Act has been expanding, so there's been more access to health care. So this, this is a this is a fantastically growing industry, and and there are, are a lot of high paying occupations in it. What about the? Or the careers where there are many openings, you said those were distinct from the ones that yes. were fast-growing. Yes. Well, uh, here we go with healthcare again. The number one on that list there is registered nurses, and uh, that accounts for 120,000 openings per year. Uh, that's what's projected for that. Uh, it's a very large occupation uh, already, and it's growing at a pretty respectable rate, 26% uh, per year. Um, and pays very well at $65,000 a year at uh, the median earnings. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity there, a lot of good pay, and um, and partly uh, the reason it's growing so fast is because registered nurses are taking over some of the uh, jobs, some of the, the tasks that used to be done by doctors. Their uh, healthcare organizations are finding it's more pro uh, it's more profitable, more more more. They can do cost savings by uh, handing these tasks over to nurses. Um, right behind that, in terms of job openings, we've got accountants and auditors. Now, when I say right behind that, actually, uh, I said 120,000 for registered nurses. For accountants and auditors, there's only 45,000 openings per year. So it's, it's quite a, a distance there between those two, between the number one and the number two. But uh, there we have it, accountants and auditors. Uh, businesses ha have to know where the money's going, where it's coming in, where it's going out. Uh, have to comply with tax, reg tax regulation and regulations of all kinds. And they need these accounts and auditors, and that will create a, a lot of job openings. I'm sorry, Lawrence. Did you say the registered nurses' salaries were sixty-five thousand or one hundred twenty thousand? Yes, one hundred twenty thousand is the number of openings. <laughs> no, not 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 the dollars. No, the dollars is sixty-five thousand dollars. Okay, thanks for no. clarifying that. Actually, Big there, are, there, there are nurses who are earning in six figures. I mean, remember, this is the median. So there are those who are earning that much, particularly those who are advanced practice nurses, those that have master's degrees. Uh, they can be earning up in six figures. I have a niece who, who's uh, earning up at that level. Uh, so it, uh, there's a, there is that opportunity there, uh, and partly because it's growing so fast, there's a need for uh, for these highly skilled workers. In some cases, they're they're earning some really respectable dollars. Now, are those nurses in that top salary range earning the 120000 working as registered nurses, or are they earning them in managerial positions? Oh, oh the, the highest paid nurses, you're right, uh, are, are 
often are, are working in managerial positions, but a lot of them are simply doing nursing tasks at a very high level. Uh, uh, people, for example, who are uh, obstetric, uh, obstetric nurses who are, are uh, actually coaching people about issues uh, such as genetic counseling, and, and uh, they may not actually go into the delivery room, but they are, are advising people. There are psychiatric nurses, for example, who do counseling and in some states are able to prescribe medicine. Um, they are, uh, are among some of the higher paid nurses. Uh, so these are advanced practice. Or another one, by the way, is, is uh, nurse anesthetists who do, uh, and anesthesiologists are some of the highest paid physicians, and in some cases uh, hospitals are using nurse anesthetists to be doing those anesthesiology jobs, uh, tasks instead. And so, again, it's, it's often it's not just managerial nurses who get those, or earn the very big bucks, it's those who are doing very highly skilled work. I read somewhere recently that because people are living longer, the average person has three careers in their lives. Are you seeing that in your research? That That is continuing, yes. That has not changed. It's very hard to come up with a real number for that. It's, it's rather speculative when you say three or you say four or you say two, but there is a lot of career changing that goes on. And that's very largely because the economy itself changes. So people, th- things that people uh, did in their 20s, let's say, uh, they simply may, uh, there may be very little need for it uh, by the time they reach their 50s and, or even their 40s. They may have to find some, some new sort of work to be doing. And uh, often uh, they can retool themselves. And this is something, uh, this, uh, this, uh, the educational system in this country with the community college was, was invented in order to do that kind of thing, to allow adults to be able to retool themselves and, and learn new skills and new, new fields of knowledge so that they can make those sort of transitions. And that's going to continue to be uh, something that's going to happen. People are going to find that they need to make shifts from one career to another. And for that reason, it's important uh, when you, even when you start out to, uh, to acquire learning skills because the most important skill of all is the ability to learn so that you can grow in your job. Even if you continue doing uh, the same career you've been doing, it's going to change. New technology is going to come about. New markets are going to open up. New business uh, practices are going to happen. And uh, you have to be able to learn those and grow in those if you want to just stay where you are, let alone advance, let alone change to a new occupation. So learning skills are really important. And that means... Uh, uh, critical thinking, it means reading comprehension, uh, and to some extent, uh, numeracy. So these are important skills that, that people need. How do those play in terms of the high-paying career paths? Are there particular careers that lend themselves more? Because many of the ones that we've been discussing require many, many years of training and university degrees. How do people who are transitioning from one career to another approach this when they look at opportunities, when they look at your book? What what would you say? A lot of the time it is going to mean formal education of some kind if you want to move from what you're doing to something that's higher paying. A lot of times it will mean getting some sort of degree. For example, perhaps you're working in some business function or other and um, you want to consider a career as an accountant. And uh, because it is, as I said, one of the, those with the, the, the largest number of openings projected for it, 
uh, you're going to need to get a degree in accounting. And so um, a lot of people will be able to uh, to go back to school one way or another and get that degree and, and, and therefore be able to make that uh, that shift. On the other hand, there there, uh, there are certain careers where uh, continuing education is baked into it. Uh, in order to maintain your license, and particularly in healthcare careers, you often need to take uh, continuing education credits uh, that show that you're keeping up with the field and that you're cognizant of, of the changes that are going on in technology and in other practices, uh, in some cases even in the laws that are involved. So uh, that's another thing. And then in the, then there are technology fields, people who work as, let's say, computer systems analysts, that's, by the way, one with a lot of openings. They expect to be 22,000 openings per year in that field. And um, and computer technology is changing all the time. And, and uh, to stay in that field, let alone to, to, to advance into some, something else, uh, you need to uh, be constantly learning the new technologies. And employers generally uh, in, in, in fields like this uh, allow and uh, encourage workers and provide opportunities for workers to get that kind of learning out and, and stay abreast of the new developments. Isn't the computer and computer services area one of the areas where the most jobs are being farmed overseas, though? It depends. Uh, certain low-level jobs, jo- jobs that just involve coding, uh, can be done uh, by a farm worker. Uh, I, I used to work with programmers who would say to me, uh, just tell me what you want and go away, and then I'll, I'll do what you want and I'll bring it back to you. And, and this is what we, sometimes what we encountered when we were uh, trying to make improvements to that City Plus system that I mentioned earlier, which was an interactive system. But nowadays, the way working with programmers has, has changed. A lot of the way uh, that is done now is uh, is done in collaborative teams. The, the most uh, advanced work, the most productive, the most creative work. Uh, is done, and, and therefore the most high-paying work is done in teams. And so think, for example, of someone who's developing a new video game. That's something where you'll be working with uh, with writers, you'll be working with voice actors, you'll be working with artists, you'll be and, and of course, the programmers. And uh, they'll be working as a team, pretty highly integrated, and uh, working in, in real time, very close uh, collaboration with one another, bouncing ideas off of one another, reacting quickly to changes in plans, and, and by the way, they're also business people. They're working with the marketing people. They've been working with and so forth. So th- that's very hard to do uh, across an ocean. And that kind of work, therefore, uh, is likely to stay in the United States. And this is one of the reasons why Silicon Valley continues to be a, a very good place for employment and, and very productive place, and continues to bring in a lot of money for for the American economy. Uh, whereas a, a kind of low-level thing where you say, well, let's just take this word processor and we'll make this one function, uh, bolding or search and replace, we'll make it run just a little bit faster. Uh, that kind of task can be farmed out to a place in, in India or China. Uh, and that, that kind of low-level work, yes, will get sent overseas. Actually, as we're discussing that, I remember seeing that they're farming out some of the medical, specifically the diagnostic, I guess it would be described, people who read x-rays and other diagnostic tests that are being shipped overseas or even diagnosis, just a regular diagnosis, where a particular physician or medical technician is looking at information from an overseas location for patients within the U.S., or even in accounting where people are turning in paperwork in the U.S., but the people who are actually filing their tax returns are overseas. Yes. Again, these are fairly routine 
fairly routine tasks. And there's also the, the possibility that uh, they can be done by robots in, in the future. Um, I'll, I'll give you another example of that uh, that's happening fairly recently, and that is legal research. Um, it used to be that, that you have a, a legal assistant here in an American office who would uh, do a lot of research in trying to find examples of cases that, that did whatever was, was at issue with, with the current case. Um, now we have a robot programs that can just do that. And, and just look through reams and reams of paper, uh, what used to be paper, and uh, and find this information and uh, do that a lot more cheaply than uh, even an overseas worker could do it. So um, th- that's this is where th- this is the threat to low level uh, and routine kinds of careers, routine kinds of occupational tasks that either could be done overseas or can be done by uh, by a robot of some kind, some kind of pro- program. And, uh, and now it used to be that we'd say, uh, you know, if you, if you put your hands on it, then it can't be done, uh, overseas or, or it certainly can't be done overseas, but it can't even be done by a robot if, if you have to have a hands on thing. But robots are getting a lot better, uh, with their hands. And, uh, we're getting now to the point where we're, uh, it used to be that the, uh, the, the trolley that took you from one part to the airport to the other part of the airport was run by a robot. But, but the, the van that drove you from the robot from, from the airport to the hotel that was a human driver. But now, uh, as you know, there's research being done by Google uh, to, into uh, robot cars that will drive themselves. So maybe the airport run uh, in, in not too many years will be done by a robot. So here's one more task that uh, can be handed off to uh, to a robot. And so this is this is why there's this constant assault on on low skilled jobs. And people have to upgrade their skills in order to survive in this economy. One of the thoughts that enters my mind in light of recent events, what is it, actual events in place and and virtual events in terms of terrorism, recently the attacks on Paris and, of course, the many attacks, the recent attack that we had on Sony and the many, many attacks that we've had on companies in the United States, so just off the top of my head, Neiman Marcus, Target, Home Depot, I can't even keep up with how many of them have been hacked. Yes. Isn't there a concern that shipping all of these jobs overseas opens us up to more risk, and are there jobs, are there job openings in these fields that are addressing that concern, or am I the only person that thinks this is something to worry about? You're probably not the only person. I'm thinking, for example, of accounting uh, uh, jobs. Uh, they, accountants often deal with sensitive information uh, and that they don't want the, the general public, with mainly the competition, to know about. And so, they, uh, therefore, a firm might be hesitant about uh, farming that off overseas. Uh, um, obviously, uh, and, and, and also, by the way, there's the whole question of whether you want to entrust that to a robot if the robot can be hacked. So, uh, however, uh, there's so many savings to be made from having things uh, done by computers that uh, I don't think you're going to see much of a reversal of that trend. One thing it does, though, is that there's going to be continuing need for people, uh, expanding need for people who work in computer security. I I have some young friends who are going, children of my friends, who are going into that field. There's a lot of opportunity there, and it does pay well. And uh, it's... uh, this this is creating this this great need for that because of the amount of of uh, of, of cyber thefts and uh, of intellectual property and the and um, uh, personality uh, impersonation what's that called identity theft 
uh, these are real issues that, that cybersecurity has to deal with. Now, when it comes to the whole question of, of terrorism, uh, there also, I'm sure, will be uh, plenty of jobs for people who work in security and uh, of the more physical kind of security, people like bodyguards, people who do things like uh, the inspectors at the airports, uh, people like that. Uh, there's going to be continued need for those, and it's hard to see how those will be replaced entirely by robots. Uh, because there's a lot of human judgment that's needed to decide uh, whether a person uh, is is a threat or not. And, and by the way, this also leaves the whole question of the police force, of secure people who work uh, just as, as routine cops on the corners and, and in cars uh, in the United States. Uh, that there's going to be continuing need for that. And as some of the recent headlines have, have shown, uh, there's a continuing need for people to make judgment uh, calls in, in situations uh, dealing with, with possible law violations and so forth. Uh, and sometimes maybe those calls aren't as good as they should be, but uh, we still rely on human judgment for making those calls. And so there's going to be a continuing need for people working in those fields, although they're not among the highest paid, I should say. Curious. You said a couple of things that reminded me of something you said, human judgment, and you talked about intellectual rights, and it Mm -hmm. dawned on me that most of what we've been discussing, perhaps with the exception of law and auditors and accountants, most -hmm. of the others are in the sciences. We haven't talked about sports. We haven't talked about arts anything creative among these highest paid careers would you tell us about those well the truth is that sports uh, it's a very competitive field and and everybody hears about the wonderful uh, million dollar salaries that the top players are earning but everybody has to realize that that is just a tiny fraction of the people who compete and try to get into that field and so I wouldn't include it among my t- uh, top occupations because it's just the outlook is just so bad in terms of, of how many uh, openings there are. There are just very few opportunities there for the high earners. The same is true uh, for people who work in the arts. They're, they're, uh, they're, I'm sure the movie stars pull in huge salaries and the uh, the, the top uh, hit makers uh, here on the radio, they're also pulling in uh, great salaries. But again, there are hundreds of, or thousands of people who are working, uh, playing in a bar band who are just not making it onto the, into the top 40. And uh, so it, it, it tends not to be a high-paying uh, kind of field to go into. Now, having said that, I should point out that there's a lot of creativity that goes into some of these high-paying jobs. So it's, when I say that, that the arts are not a great place to, um, to earn a high bucks, uh, I shouldn't say, for example, that, uh, that architects and engineering, architectural and engineering managers don't use a fair amount of creativity in what they do. Or um, for that matter, even, uh, uh, even lawyers have to use a certain amount of creativity in what they do. So uh, I, w- I wouldn't say, I would try to draw a line between creative and non-creative occupations. You know, one thing I would like to comment on is, is some of the characteristics, uh, the, sort of the general characteristics of high-paying occupations. The Department of Labor uh, identifies the certain characteristics of occupations of in terms of uh, the kinds of things uh, that they that, that you find in the environment where you work, the kinds of tasks you do on a day-to-day basis, the, the characteristics of uh, of your your work, and I um, looked at these and I, I ran calcu- uh, what's called correlations. You see, uh, if you're getting a high amount of pay, what are these characteristics that tend to go along with it? And the number one characteristic that tends to be associated with high-paying 
uh, with high pay in occupations is email. And now I guess that's not really a big surprise. And it's something that I don't know, it really is. And the number two, by the way, is, is that you uh, write a lot of or you have a lot of letters and memos in the, in the office. Um, of course, this is also associated with, associated with some fairly low level occupations as well. But there's a highest correlation to, to the higher paying occupations. But I think maybe what's more, more revealing is, uh, for example, the third on the list I've got there is freedom to make decisions. That's that's associated very highly with high pay, uh, and having structured rather than unstructured work uh, tends to be associated with this. Uh, but and you may, you may think, well, this is kind of nice. Uh, it's kind of nice to have something where it's not a big open sea and, and the work week tends to be fairly structured. It's nice to have freedom to make decisions. And uh, I, I kind of enjoy reading my email and, and dealing with letters. I, I can deal with that. It's not bad having those things. But I should point out some other characteristics that I found are associated with high pay. Duration of typical work week. In other words, long hours, long work hours. Uh, level of competition is a characteristic of high-paying occupation. So there's a lot of competition for those high-paying jobs. Uh, spending time sitting. If you're the kind of antsy person who doesn't like to be behind a desk all the time, uh, then, then this may not be what you want to be doing. Uh, public speaking is uh, was something that I found. It tends to be associated with high-level jobs. Uh, when you ask people what's, what is it they fear most, this comes up very often. A lot of people are terrified of public speaking. But uh, if you want to earn the big bucks, that often is a requirement. Uh, responsibility for outcomes and results. So let's face it, you, you, most of these occupations, particularly the managerial ones, put you in a high level of responsibility. Uh, or an importance of being exact or accurate is another one. Think of the, the medical careers, for example. Sometimes uh, these occupations involve life or death decisions or decisions where there's a lot of money riding on them. So there's pressure, there's stress, this often comes with these high-paying jobs, and so you have to accept that often as part of the package. What are we looking at in terms of where these high-paying careers are most likely to be found? We've already talked about geography, so in this case I'm referring to, are we talking about government jobs? Are we talking about the Fortune 1000, or are we talking about the backbone of America, which are small businesses, or is it a mixture? What can you tell us about where these high-paying careers can be found? Uh, it really is a mixture. Uh, for example, if you look at the um, the highest-paying one of them all, the physicians and the surgeons, I mean, that will vary from people who are uh, in individual practice to people who work in hospitals. Uh, there are some people who work for the government to do that. Uh, it varies quite a bit. I should say that the trend uh, is is away from individual practice, and it's towards larger and larger group practice or people who work for uh, health maintenance organizations or hospitals. This tends to be the, tr- the trend in medical careers now. Uh, and, and in general, I'd say for, for most of these occupations, it tends to be happening more in larger organizations. Uh, and this is true of the management careers, and it's it's true of, uh, for example, the engineering careers. I mean, there are people who have an engineering consulting company that's fairly small, uh, but a lot of them, uh, particularly in the higher-paying jobs, are working for, let's say, uh, uh, Exxon or Mobil or one of uh, Exxon Mobil or or one of those large organizations. So this this is the, the tendency. Uh, it, it, uh, larger organizations. Uh, because they, they earn in bigger bucks, they're a larger, uh, they have a larger footprint, they often uh, can, can uh, pay better than, than smaller organizations. 
Another, uh, I didn't mention airline pilots, uh, which is an occupation that uh, was number 12 among my 173 highest paying occupations. And uh, again, uh, you really want to be working for one of the major airlines to be earning those big bucks. The people who are working for the small, uh, little uh, local airlines are earning just a pittance compared to uh, what the, the uh, those who are who are working for the majors. I neglected when I listed the the places where the high paying careers could be to mention nonprofits or, or ah, but of yes. course there are many people in nonprofits who are earning very nice salaries. What would you tell us about that? Yeah, that is true. Uh, and, and almost all these occupations can be found working in some nonprofits. Uh, for example, the physicians. Some of them work for hospitals that are nonprofits. Um, and the chief executives, every, almost every nonprofit organization needs a, a, a chief executive. Uh, they need accountants. They need marketing managers. Uh, and they need lawyers. I mean, and, but as a rule, I should say that, uh, that it tends, to, the pay tends to be lower in not-for-profit organizations compared to for-profit organizations. I've worked for both and, uh, and I've, I've looked at salaries and I've looked at salary surveys and, uh, I've, I know that, that they tend to be, the pay tends to be lower in, uh, not-for-profit organizations. One of the things that they've been talking about since uh, all the buzz about the baby boomer generation retiring started is that as more and more of the baby boomers in the senior positions began to retire, there would be an increasing number of gaps in companies and the history of companies and the knowledge in companies. How, if at all, is that impacting these high-paying careers and career openings? It is creating openings, uh, the, the, the departure of the baby boomers. Uh, I, I'm from that generation, and I've been always interested in seeing uh, what impact we've been having uh, on the field of careers. I should point out, though, that a lot of these occupations uh, that are high-paying do not have uh, strong physical requirements uh, somebody who, for example, uh, is uh, is an elevator repairer, that person has to do a fair amount of physical work. That, that by the way, is the highest paying uh, uh, blue-collar occupation. Uh, but most of these occupations, look at, for example, physicians. Uh, some of them have a certain amount of physical uh, work involved. I, I think working as a surgeon can sometimes be very physically ta- taxing. But uh, working as a psychiatrist, for example, is not very physically taxing. Uh, neither is uh, working uh, as, uh, most cases, like a marketing manager. And so some of these people can extend their careers uh, well past what uh, in other fields might be considered retirement age. So some of these people may be working into their late 60s, into their 70s, even into their 80s to continue in their career because uh, – and another reason, by the way, they may want to persist in that is not only that they have the physical ability to be able to sit behind a desk and go on doing what they've been doing behind a desk, but also because in a lot of cases they've sunk a lot of time and money uh, and effort into getting the advanced degree they needed to go into that field, and so they're not – and they want to capitalize on that as long and as well as they can, and so they want to stay in the career for a long time. So for for those reasons, um, it, there, it may be it, these high paying careers may take a little longer to empty out their baby boomers than some of the uh, lower paying careers that, that have more of a physical component to them. You mention the concept of personality types and 
striving to match your personality type with these high-paying careers. It sounds like they share a number of common traits, the ones that you mentioned a few minutes ago, the stress, the emails, the letters, the structure, etc. How can you match your personality type, your comfort zone with these high-paying careers? Aren't they sort of sharing a lot of these same characteristics? Yeah, they they do. Uh, as I mentioned, some of those characteristics before, like uh, this, the, the amount of responsibility, the long hours, that kind of thing, and and that's one way of looking at personality types. In the book, uh, the personality types I look at are defined in a different way. Uh, they're the, the, the six types that were defined by John Holland, and um, and those are the realistic, the investigative, the artistic, the social. Uh, the enterprising and the conventional. And, and those terms may not mean a whole lot to you if, if you haven't uh, got a lot of background in that field. Uh, for example, uh, I don't know, realistic, it may, well, you may say, well, you know, what, mean, what does that mean? Uh, does it mean that I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I don't have fan- fantastic ideas or something like that? But actually, realistic means sort of hands-on sort of careers, careers that involve uh, working with things mostly and tools um, or perhaps plants and animals. Uh, so uh, in the book, I, I do define what these personality types are for those who aren't familiar with them. Um, and I look at, at the occupations that, uh, and I break them down into these six types. And so, um, and, and this is something that, that a lot of people who have taken uh, interest inventories or some other kind of career personality type uh, may have identified their type this way. So they may be, so you may be familiar with that for that reason. And uh, and then there, then again, one of the things you have to understand about personality types is that uh, although they put people into nice little pigeonholes, uh, people are very rarely defined in just a simple simple way. So, for example, the social personality type, where you generally like dealing with other people, maybe teaching them, maybe helping them feel better. Uh, most people aren't just purely interested in that one thing. There may be some other aspect uh, that of uh, their personality, some subtype. So, for example, they may also be interested in uh, uh, the investigative personality, the kind of person who do, likes to do research. So someone like that might, for example, well, the occupation I have down here for someone who, whose main type is, is social and his secondary type is investigative is someone who is a law teacher at the post-secondary level. So that person enjoys doing the teaching that's involved uh, in, in that in that career, but also is interested and has a degree in the law because that person is interested in the sort of uh, problem solving that uh, that appeals to the investigative personality type. A physician assistant is another one like that, where again you're helping people feel better, but you've got to do a lot of problem solving and, and question and answering kind of stuff in order to figure out how to diagnose a person's uh, illnesses. And so uh, that's uh, th- that is why that uh, will fit into that sort of personality type. Physician assistant, by the way, is another one I, I, I should mention. Um, again, in the health career field and uh, growing by t- uh, almost 30% a year and paying uh, a little over $90,000 a year, uh, it, it's a really good alternative for people who don't really want to spend all the time that it takes to go through medical school and yet w- who want to do a lot of the same tasks that physicians do. Uh, if you've been to a, a, a physician specialist lately, uh, you probably have spent a lot of time with the physician assistant, a lot more time than you actually spent with the, phys- with the specialist because this is a way, again, cost containment, uh, the, t- the trend is to hand off tasks to 
uh, to allied health workers rather than have the uh, those with medical degrees do the work and do do all the tasks. So uh, that and and this is something you do with the equivalent of a, of a master's degree. That's that's how you get into that field. That's how you get into the physician's assistant. Physician's assistant, yes, PA. Which career paths would you say have the lowest barrier to entry if you haven't already gotten your PhD or your medical degree or your law degree or your accounting degree and you want a high-paying career, or if you have one but you want to switch to something different, which of these high-paying careers have the lowest barrier to entry? Of the, of the ones that I have in, in the book, um, let's see, uh, with only moderate term, and that means just a few months of on-the-job training um, and some experience in, in a similar field, you can be working uh, as, a, as a supervisor of police and detectives. This is pays seven to $8,000 a year. Uh, it's not growing very fast, and there are not a whole lot of openings, but this is people who have worked as police uh, without experience or with a little bit of, of training. They can work their way up to become a, a supervisor, a first-line supervisor, which means that they're continuing to do some of the work. They're not just doing supervision. Uh, detectives and criminal investigators is another one, by the way, where, again, moderate-term on-the-job training is all you need to go into that. Uh, and uh, loan officers is another one. Now, that one is a little bit of danger of uh, automation. You know, many decisions about who gets a loan and who doesn't get a loan are just uh, spat out by a robot. They, they feed in somebody who's very low-skilled, feeds in the figures of what your earnings are and uh, what your, and, and your credit rating gets fetched from one of those credit rating agencies, and then the computer decides whether you're uh, credit-worthy or not. But they're still, uh, they're still growing by 14% per year, uh, loan officers, and it pays $59,000, so... So there's still some opportunity there with only moderate-term on-the-job training. And then I only have one more that fits in that category, and that's the first-line supervisors of correctional officers. Again, they learn that through moderate-term on-the-job training, and most of them uh, have – in fact, that one is another example of that where you you need to have some work experience in a related field. In other words, you've been working as as a corrections officer already, and then you go into supervision. Now, if you look at occupations where – let's look uh, at an associate degree, which is something that takes very little amount of training. It's just a couple of years of – Construction managers uh, can go into that field. Again, it helps to have um, – you, you need some uh, work in, in a related field. So perhaps you've been working as a carpenter and you have that experience. Uh, and with a social degree, you can be, uh, have the skills to go into management. Uh, radiation therapists is, uh, and, and dental hygienists and nuclear medicine uh, technologists and diagnostic medical sonographers. These are all occupations, healthcare occupations that are high-paying they're in this book, and you can go into those with uh, with an associate's degree. Uh, registered nurses, uh, there's still some openings in that field for people with an associate degree, uh, but uh, the, they tend to pay less uh, than, than those who go into the field with a bachelor's degree, and generally uh, they want you to upgrade your skills to a bachelor's level pretty soon when you go into that career with, an, with a two-year degree. Uh, engineering technicians uh, and uh, electrical en- uh, electronic engineering technicians, that's another field with an associate degree would be an appropriate kind of, of uh, preparation. So there are those occupations that are, are available there, 
uh, for people. Uh, but again, it, it helps to have a degree and it helps to have a fairly recent degree so that you know the latest bag of tricks because uh, these these occupations tend to involve technology. It tends to be fast uh, changing, fast moving. And so uh, you better have the latest set of skills. And you and it really you should think in the long term about upgrading your skills, maybe getting a bachelor's degree uh, so that you can continue to grow in that in that field. Is there a correlation between advanced degrees, graduate and postgraduate, and high salaries? Most definitely. And, you know, a, a graduate degree is not a guarantee of a high-paying job, but uh, you're, you're improving your odds a great deal. Is there any kind of a quality-of-life ratio? Many times we talk about people who earn very high income, but of course they're working many hours and they have no personal life. They have a very stressed lifestyle. They're high risk takers. Is there any kind of a formula to guide people who are looking to make career changes or career decisions that you might share? I can't come up with a formula, but as I said earlier, uh, these, some of these stress-inducing uh, characteristics do tend to come up in these high-paying jobs, things like long hours, as you mentioned, things like having a lot of responsibility, uh, the, uh, the criticality of your decisions, um, the amount of competition that you face. All of these things are, are, tend to produce stress in most people, but then again, there are people who thrive on that. Uh, I find, for example, that nothing uh, focuses my mind better than having a deadline. So a, a certain amount of pressure uh, can, can actually be useful and can make a person more productive. Uh, but then again, you know, working long hours, you know, that can really de- decline or de- degrade a person's quality of life. Again, some people may not have much of a private life yet and may may thrive on, on working and maybe a workaholic and really may enjoy that kind of situation. Uh, so I really can't prescribe any uh, say, say that you know that, that universally uh, these these are going to be um, difficult for people to put up with. Uh, some people are going to work, function very well in this environment, and other people will just see it as a trade-off. They'll say, "Well, this is something that where I can buy a certain amount of leisure time. I'm a work hard, play hard kind of person, and so uh, so with the two weeks of vacation I get, I'm going to do the top dollar sort of vacation and really enjoy it." and make sure that I have all the toys around so that when I'm home, I can really enjoy myself and kick back and, and, and have a nice life, uh, lifestyle. So it's a, it's a trade-off, and, and, and different people will come down on this in, in different ways and how much what suits them. What three suggestions would you share with our listeners who are interested in learning more about high-paying careers, what opportunities are there, where they are? I think the most important things to, I'm not sure, it's three or four or two, but the most important thing is to get a high level of skill and uh, and acquire that skill, start out acquiring the learning skills, and don't let up on acquiring new skills. Keep at it. uh, Keep abreast of what's going on in your field. Uh, Another thing that's important is to get some visibility in your field. And uh, there are professional organizations, there are conferences that come together where you can meet other people and network with other people. And this is going to be important for uh, for advancing in your career and for having some visibility in your career. Um, there's always, uh, professional associations always need volunteers to be uh, working. Uh, and so it's very helpful to, to have to your career to, uh, to, to volunteer in, in some sort of position like that. And 
therefore uh, get some visibility with your peers. And sometimes a high-paying job will come knocking at your door because someone will, will be aware of your talents uh, because of your efforts to network like this. And in terms of, of the occupation itself, um, it, uh, technology is going to continue to be very important. And uh, so you really want to keep abreast of technology. And it's very important to understand communi- uh, communications technology because uh, it used to be people did a lot of uh, wrote memos. Now people do emails. People do instant messaging. People do texting. And so you, if you want to keep abreast of your field and be successful in your field, you have to be uh, cognizant and, and skilled with the latest methods of communication. Thank you, Lawrence, for joining us from Titusville, New Jersey. Good talking to you, Elena. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Lawrence Shatkin, Ph.D., who is author of Your Guide to High-Paying Careers, who discussed high-paying careers. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.